Hello, and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. We were talking about late in the day, August 4, 1892, the day of the murders. The last thing we know that the police did on that day was Harrington brought Eli Bentz over to the house, brought Lizzie into the kitchen on a pretext, and afterwards took Bentz out of the house and had Bentz confirm that this was the person he had seen the day before in the drugstore trying to buy poison. Other than that, we have virtually no information from the police in the police reports or in the testimony or from any other source as to what the police were doing between about 3 p.m. and the end of that day. Because at 3 p.m. or thereabouts, we know that Hilliard had a bunch of officers up in the loft of the barn tossing hay from one side of the barn to the other. So let's assume that on Friday, the police were consulting with the prosecutors. Because if they weren't, I can't begin to understand what they were doing that day. We know that they sent an officer up early in the morning on Friday, sometime around 7 a.m., to collect the axes and the hatchets from the cellar. They did have officers up there on Friday the 5th, but for the most part in the yard or the barn. There may have been another brief search of the cellar, but I don't believe there was any search at all of the first, second, or third floors of the house. So let's assume that they did consult with Knowlton and or Pillsbury. Knowlton, I believe, was on vacation at a summer house in Marion, which is 10 or 15 miles from Fall River. I don't know where Pillsbury was at that time. Both of these men could have been reached almost certainly by telegram within a matter of minutes. And let's assume that if either the police had contacted them, tracked them down, or these two prosecutors had seen the newspaper seen the headlines, and contacted the police on their own initiative. And let's assume that in some fashion, there was a consultation, whether it was in person, over the phone, or through an exchange of telegrams. I don't see anything in the Knowlton papers regarding telegrams for Friday the 5th. It's possible that he got a a very brief telegram asking him to meet or to contact the police We don't have copies of telegrams necessarily that he sent or letters that he sent. It's mostly what he received. So if he initiated the contact on the 5th, we may not have any record of that. At any rate, let's assume they talked and let's assume that Knowlton and or Pillsbury got up to speed on the case. At that point, they would have said to the police, it certainly sounds like Lizzie was involved. Either she committed these murders herself or she had somebody do it for her while she acted as the lookout. But Knowlton would have said to them, you've really got a tight window there because Bridget heads up four or five minutes before 11. Whoever is going to kill Mr. Borden has to retrieve the weapon, has to put on the clothing, has to get into the sitting room, kill Mr. Borden, cover everything up, take off the clothing, bundle it up, bundle up the weapon and either leave the house with the incriminating evidence or find a place to hide it, depending on whether it was Lizzie or whether it was another person who committed the murders. That creates all kinds of problems. It really makes it look like there was an accomplice. It's difficult to imagine that Lizzie could have done all that within the space of 15 minutes. If it was Lizzie, we know she was not in a hat, wasn't wearing gloves and wasn't wearing some kind of covering clothing. She wasn't wearing an overcoat. She wasn't wearing a raincoat. Not at the time that Bridget went upstairs. 
So Bridget starts upstairs. If it was just Lizzie, she would have had to go to wherever she had all this stuff hidden, put on the overcoat, put on the hat, put on the gloves, go into the sitting room, kill her father, probably take everything off on the spot, roll it up in a bundle, and hide it somewhere. Hide it somewhere that the police would not be able to find it. And then go down, probably to the basement, wash up, get a mirror, make sure that there was no blood on her face, no blood in her hair, as far as she could tell. Inspect her dress as best she could, maybe take it off quickly and look at it carefully all over to make sure that blood had not gotten under the protective clothing. Put the dress back on, take a deep breath, and get upstairs and raise the alarm. And then if she did go out to the barn, if she did go to the barn and get up into the loft and walk around very quickly just to create her alibi, that would have taken another minute or two or three. And there was a witness at trial that the defense found, an ice cream peddler named Lubinsky, who had no motive to lie, who testified that around 8 or 10 minutes after 11, he was driving his cart down the street, and he saw a woman walking slowly from the barn towards the Borden house, which is exactly when Lizzie said she came back. And this guy, Lubinsky, happened to have sold ice cream to Bridget a few weeks before. So he said it wasn't Bridget. And we know it wasn't Bridget because Bridget was up on the third floor anyway. And we know Bridget was not involved in this crime. So it had to be Lizzie. So if Lubinsky's telling the truth... And if Lizzie was involved in the murders, especially Mr. Borden's murder, in addition to everything she would have done that I've already discussed, she would have had to take the time to hurry out to the barn, get up to the loft, walk around, create some physical evidence that she had been up there, and then walk back to the house. And I'm sure Knowlton would have said to them, this is going to be a tough sell. This is going to be a tough sell. We have to pile up the points. We have to build a big lead here. Because if we don't find the murder weapon, if we don't find any bloody clothing that we can link to her, we're going to need every bit of evidence that we can gather. So, you guys need to organize a search as soon as possible. Here it is Friday. You've lost today. You didn't get her dress yesterday. You didn't get her shoes or her socks yesterday. You don't even know for sure what dress she was wearing before she changed. You've got to do an absolutely thorough search of the house as soon as possible. Now, I'm assuming that as of Friday, attorney Andrew Jennings had become involved in the case. Jennings was Mr. Borden's lawyer. Jennings was about 40. He had a very good reputation in Fall River. He was considered a first-rate lawyer, and he had, I believe, a general practice. So as far as his representation of Mr. Borden was concerned, it was mostly real estate, contracts. It would have included probate if Mr. Borden had wanted a will or a trust, or if he wanted to discuss those issues, it would have been with Attorney Jennings. Jennings had known Mr. Borden in some capacity ever since he was a boy. So he had some kind of personal relationship in addition to the professional relationship. And as I said, Jennings was considered a very capable guy. And he did a pretty good job in the hearings. He represented Lizzie all the way through. He represented her starting within a day, possibly started representing her officially the day of the murders. So the police would have had to communicate through Jennings pretty quickly. And Jennings would have told them right away, 
as early as Thursday afternoon or Thursday evening, no later than Friday morning. You are not to talk to Lizzie about anything substantive without my permission. If you want to go and say, Miss Lizzie, can we go down and get the hatchets? That's okay, but nothing more than that. No questions about her whereabouts, no questions about her relationship with Mr. Borden or Mrs. Borden, nothing of that nature. So Knowlton would have known that, and Knowlton would have said to the police, guys, you lost the opportunity to do a thorough interrogation yesterday. You're not going to get that chance again if we're really lucky, and I'm not counting on it, if we're really lucky, Lizzie will be dumb enough to come in and testify at the inquest, which we are hopefully going to do next week, and which, in fact, they did do next week. They started that inquest on Tuesday, August 9th, and they finished it on Thursday, August 11th, and they hit the jackpot. Lizzie did testify, and we'll talk about that probably next episode, and that is just astounding that she insisted on testifying, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So the big thing that Knowlton would have said to them is, get this search, get it done as soon as possible, and look, obviously you're going to go in and you're going to look for the murder weapon, you're going to look for clothing, bloody clothing, get her dress, get the dress she wore the morning of August 4th. Do everything you can to get that because we need to get it tested. Who knows what's on it? Even if there are no visible blood stains, there may be specks of blood, especially if they're on the shoulder or the back or the arms. That could be critical. So get that dress. Do a thorough search. Keep careful records. Do an inventory. And I'm sure that Knowlton would have told them, ask Lizzie and Emma and Bridget to show you every single dress that was in the house on Thursday. Everything. Doesn't matter who it belonged to. That would include Mrs. Borden's dresses and do a complete inventory and do a thorough inspection of every single dress. Now, this is all supposition on my part. I don't know whether this conversation happened. If it didn't, it's further evidence that the police bungled the case. At any rate, they arranged to do a search on Saturday. They must have coordinated that through Andrew Jennings. Now, when the funeral party headed down to the cemetery in the late morning of Saturday, August 6th, the police basically rushed in as soon as the family was out of sight and did a 30 to 45 minute search. Now, I don't know if they had specifically obtained or received permission to do that, but what they did was they made a beeline for Lizzie's bedroom and Emma's bedroom and they searched those two rooms. They went through the drawers. They looked in the bed, went through the bedding, the mattress, the mattresses, the pillows, and whatever they could manage to do in the space of 30 to 45 minutes in those two rooms, they did it. Then they got out. When Lizzie returned with Emma and John Morrison, anybody else from the family, I suppose maybe Alice Russell came back with them, the police returned around 3, 3.30. I'm going to say they were there around 3. And they then conducted a thorough search of the house from the roof to the cellar. And that took about three and a half hours. And the people who were present at that search, to the best of my knowledge, were Marshal Hilliard, Assistant Marshal Fleet, State Police Detective Seaver, Dr. Dolan, and Andrew Jennings. And if there were other people there for the search, I don't remember fleet at one point actually I think climbed up onto the roof, got up onto the roof of the Borden house and searched something up there. I don't know what he was looking for. Maybe he thought 
someone had gone up and hidden the hatchet on the roof. I, I'm not sure. But they searched all the way down. They started in the attic and they went down room by room. And at various times, they needed Emma and Lizzie to help them gain access to trunks. There were a couple of trunks they couldn't open. They had to get Emma and Lizzie to come up to the third floor and show them how to, to do it. And they claimed during their testimony that this was a really thorough search. One thing that's interesting to me, and I don't think it occurred to the police, it certainly occurred to Holmes. I don't think Holmes was able to follow up on this because it appears he never got access to the Borden house. He never got in to do his own investigation. But I don't think it occurred to the police that there might have been a secret hiding place in the house that Mr. Borden had created himself after he bought the house. What did I tell you Mr. Borden did for a living before he bought into the furniture business in his early 20s? What did he do? Show of hands, please. He was a Finnish carpenter, correct. Good for you. A Finnish carpenter, a cabinet maker. So he buys the house in 1872. He's 50 years old. He's retired. Is it possible that after buying the house, before he has bought an expensive fireproof safe and installed it in his bedroom, is it possible that he used his skills as a Finnish carpenter and a cabinet maker to create a really well-designed hiding place near the back stairs or in the kitchen pantry? somewhere that there was wainscoting or paneling, you know, wherever it was, something wooden that he could remove and he could find some kind of storage space and then construct the hiding place in such a way that it was virtually invisible. Is that possible? I'd say yes. I'd say it's definitely possible. How likely is it? I don't know. But don't you think that this is the kind of thing the police should have been thinking about? Don't you think that their focus... The 125 members of the Fall River Police Department should have been brainstorming about how do we search this house? What should we be looking for? Don't just go into every trunk, every bureau. Don't just look for loose floorboards. Think broadly. Think outside the box. What did Mr. Borden do for work? Oh my God, he was a cabinet maker. What does that career suggest? Also remember that in those days, we're, we're talking about a house without electricity. We're talking about a house that didn't have lights on the back stairs, didn't have electric lights. It, you had parts of the house that were pretty much all the time, all day long, were dark. You've got spaces on the north side of the house, which is where the back stairs were. That's a good place to put in a secret hiding compartment to build it in because it doesn't get a lot of natural light. You'd have to go with a lantern and search really carefully. It's interesting to me that they didn't do this. And what's also interesting to me is that at one point, there's an exchange of letters between Pillsbury and Knowlton several months into the case, probably as the trial is approaching, the winter or spring of 1893. And Pillsbury says to Knowlton, I think the only way we would ever recover the murder weapon is if we tore the house down if we dismantled it, if we took it apart piece by piece, I think we would find the hatchet. But other than that, I don't expect to find it. And I think Pillsbury was right, or that was at least a reasonable supposition on his part. 
He didn't make the connection with Mr. Borden's career as a cabinet maker, but he did suspect that there was some kind of hiding place in the house that was not obvious, no matter how careful the search, that it was not going to be discovered. Let's talk about the search Saturday afternoon into Saturday evening. Probably the most important part of that search was the dresses. We know that the police went through all the bureaus and the trunks and the closets and looked for loose floorboards, etc. So they didn't find anything there. But clearly one thing they could have done and should have done is make a complete inventory of all the dresses. Not only do they want the dress so that they can get it to Dr. Wood and have it examined for bloodstains, but they also want to force Lizzie to turn the dress over to them. And if they can prove that the dress she gave them was not the dress she wore on Thursday morning, that's circumstantial evidence that she is hiding something. It's evidence of guilt. It's a major point to score. It's not enough to convict her, but it's the kind of evidence they needed to pile up if they wanted any hope of a conviction. So what happens is they go back into the walk-in closet at some point on Saturday afternoon, and you remember that Fleet went in on Thursday and did this half-assed search of the dresses, where he kind of looked for blood and kind of didn't. So he goes back in with Seaver, Detective Seaver, on Saturday afternoon. I mean, this is the state police. Seaver is the state police detective. The state police had been running a sting to try to catch drugstores selling poison without prescriptions. They'd been using state police officers' wives to do that. It's not like this was unprecedented. Why didn't Seaver have his wife come in and say, that's alpaca, that's Bedford cord, that's calico, that's gingham, that's a such and such style, and write it all down? Why not? Because the dress evidence might turn out to be critical. The worst thing, as far as the prosecution, the worst thing that could have happened is that Lizzie turned over the dress that she really did wear, and they had it tested, and there was no blood on it. That's the worst possible outcome, but at least they would have known that was the dress she wore. But instead, what happened was they went into the closet, and they went through these dresses. They didn't even examine every single one. There were some fancy silk dresses in one corner of the walk-in closet. They didn't even take those down. That's amazing. Take every dress down. You don't know if something has been hidden inside the fancy silk dress. Maybe another dress has been stuffed inside it somehow. Maybe that dress was worn. Maybe it was worn inside out. You don't know. You've got all the time in the world. You can stay in this house all day, all night if you need to. I can't believe that Jennings or Lizzie or Emma would have said, time's up, it's 6.30, you gotta go. That just isn't credible. And so not only did they not look at those fancy silk dresses, but they didn't bring in a woman who could tell them what they were looking at. Nor did they say to Bridget and Emma, show us every single dress that is in the house right now. And if there are dresses that were in the house Thursday that aren't in the house right now, you need to identify them. You need to give us complete description. You need to tell us where they are. And they didn't do any of that. So even if they had kept a really careful list or record of every dress they did examine, that doesn't mean that they examined every dress in the house because apparently they didn't. But here's what's really amazing. At the trial in June of 1893, 
of course the prosecution has to bring Fleet and Seaver in to testify because they're going to claim that the dress that Lizzie gave them, the Bengaline silk, the navy blue fancy dress she gave them that she said she was wearing on Thursday morning, of course they're going to claim that wasn't the right dress because you remember I told you Mrs. Churchill said it was a faded pale blue dress with a diamond shape on the blouse and Dr. Bowen had said it was a drab dress, an everyday cheap cotton dress. And Doherty had said it to the best of his memory, it was a pale blue dress. They had enough evidence there to contradict what Lizzie was saying and to contradict what she had given them and indicate it wasn't the real dress. So Seaver, they have to bring Seaver in to testify. They bring him in. And on cross-examination, he says the same sort of things that Fleet had said about his Thursday search. How many dresses were there? I'm not sure. Well, give us a rough guess. Somewhere between 12 and 18. You don't know the exact number. No. Tell us what material they were. I'm not really sure. Were they calico? I don't know. Alpaca? I don't know. Gingham? Bedford cord? Don't know. Can't tell you. Can you tell us what style they were? No. Were these the only dresses in the house? I don't know. Did you keep notes or a record? Did you keep a record of the dresses you examined? Yes, I did. Do you have those records? Do you have that report? Do you have those notes? No, uh, I lost. I lost the records. I don't know what happened to them. I lost them somehow. They're gone. I can't find them. I brought them with me to the police station or I brought them with me to some earlier court proceeding. They were in my coat pocket and then somehow they got lost. Can you believe this? Do you believe what I'm telling you? Do you really believe that in the case of the century, in the most sensational, important murder case in the history of the country up to that point and possibly ever, the police detective lost his notes? Nobody stole them. He just lost them. Can you believe this? It is absolutely incredible. And not only did he lose those notes, he ended up losing the notes that he made when Dolan had him measure the blood spots. Which blood spots were on which door, how many were here, how many were there. He lost his notes for that. That was on another day. I can tell you that in my experience, the best officers I ever dealt with outside of maybe the FBI, were state police. They were the cream of the crop. They were the equivalent of the Marines or special forces. If you could draw a parallel between police and military, these guys were really good. I never met an incompetent state trooper. I met incompetent beat cops and I met incompetent sheriff's deputies. But I guess in Massachusetts in 1892, that was not necessarily the case. How embarrassing. How embarrassing. You lose the notes. And so what happens is, at the trial, even though Fleet and Seaver say, we looked at almost all the dresses, we held them up to the light, the window in the walk-in closet, we looked carefully, we didn't see any blood, we didn't see the dress that Mrs. Churchill identified, that pale blue dress with the diamond pattern. Emma comes in and testifies that that dress was hanging in the walk-in closet on Saturday night that after the cops had left, she went in to hang up her dress, I guess at bedtime, and she couldn't find a hanger. And she found the dress we're talking about. She found the dress that Mrs. Churchill said Lizzie had worn. And she said, it was in the way. There wasn't room to hang my own dress up. One other thing I'll say about Seaver is, 
It isn't exactly clear at the trial. Let me try to summarize it as best I can. At the trial, Robinson, who did most of the cross-examination for the defense, asked Seaver, do you happen to remember what dress Lizzie was wearing on the afternoon when you were doing the search? And he said, I think she was wearing either the pale blue dress that we were looking for that we now believe was the dress in question, the dress that we think she wore on the morning of the murders. I think she might actually have been wearing that. Or she was wearing the Bengaline silk. I can't remember. And Robinson said, well, do you remember what day this was, this Saturday? Do you remember if this was a special day? Do you remember if it was the day of the funeral? And I'm pretty sure Seaver says, ah, I know there was a funeral. I can't remember what day it was. And Robinson goes, it was actually that day. You, you don't remember that? And Seaver goes, I guess it was. I guess we did search on the day of the funeral. And then Robinson goes, are you telling me that when she came back after the funeral, she goes down to the cemetery, she comes back, she's back at the house. Are you telling me that she was wearing her morning dress? She was wearing the morning house dress on the afternoon after the funeral. Didn't she come back from the funeral wearing her best silk morning dress? And so Seaver has to backtrack and say, oh, I can't remember. I guess she was. I mean, he was caught guessing at what she was wearing and whatever he guessed she was wearing was clearly not what she was wearing because it was the day of the funeral. So not only does he look like a fool because he's lost his notes and he has no idea what he saw that day. He has no idea how many dresses he saw. He doesn't know the style, etc. But he looks like a fool because he was saying under oath that he thought she was wearing a certain type of dress And it couldn't have been that dress because it was the day of the funeral and she would have been wearing something different. So next episode, we will talk about a visit that the mayor and the marshal paid to the Borden family Saturday evening, maybe an hour after the search concluded. That's a very important meeting. And then we're going to talk about this event that happened on Sunday morning. So make sure to tune in next week. I look forward to talking to you then. I appreciate you listening. And as always, take care.